The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is John Conley, Dr. John Conley. He has a degree, a doctorate degree in education, and he's president and CEO of Castle Conley Medical's hugely popular America's Top Doctors website and listenings, and the website is CastleConley.com. Uh, he is the nation's foremost expert on, ident- on identifying top physicians. Um, he has a whole list of credentials here, which we'll talk about later, but he's been on uh, Good Morning America, The Today Show, uh, New York Times. Uh, he is the expert on America's top doctors, and his website is just that. So welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, John. Thank you, Captain. Good to be with you. Great to have you. Well, uh, the medical industry, big industry, it's all about, sometimes I feel it's all about the biz. So it's really refreshing to be able to, and I think most of us, I don't think that any of us at any time haven't needed to kind of go to something like your website and, and, and take a look and identify who the best doctors are. So um, your yours is the website to go to, I, as, as I understand it, kind of the go-to website for top doctors' websites and listening, and the most trusted source, I guess trusted is really the key word for identifying top physicians, um, is a site that's also recommended by other doctors, um, which also is a, you know, gives you a lot of, uh, <laughs> you, you feel good about it if other doctors are recommending those doctors. Uh, but how does it work? How does the website work? Let's say, you know, I, I guess, you, what do you assess the physicians? Every year you go through the research per, uh, process to find out who are the top docs and then put them on your website? We, we do, and you touched on a, a really critical point, and, and that is our website is very different than others. Most websites have consumer ratings of doctors, but our website contains almost 50,000 physicians that have been nominated by their peers and screened by our research team. Doctors cannot pay to be on it. Uh, they have to be nominated by their peers. And, and we do that because we feel that physicians really know who the top doctors are better than consumers. So the consumer websites are interesting, but we think ours is essentially valuable for that reason. And, and that idea was uh, my partner's John Castle, when I was leaving New York Medical College, I'd been there 10 years and wanted to do something different. Because so many of our friends had called to ask for recommendations. And I didn't ask my friends and neighbors. I asked physicians on the medical staff. And so we decided to follow the same model with our, our websites in order to help people find the best health care. Yeah, I mean, it's a great model, and yes, you feel very secure when uh, you're getting recommendations from other doctors, so the credentials obviously are really good ones, and this is done both on the regional and national level. So what do we do? How do we navigate this website? Let's talk specifically, and what can we learn from it? Well, um, it's interesting. First of all, I want to point out that over 90% of the people who visit our website making an appointment with a, one or more doctors they find there. We just completed a survey of website visitors. And basically, you, you come on, and if your goal is to find a doctor, you can do that either by searching for a doctor in your community uh, geographically, and we show all the major markets where you can identify doctors, or you might want to search by disease or procedure, or health issue, and you can do it that way again. So you, you might put in, in 
to uh, you know Kansas City or Chicago or Atlanta. Put in your geographic area, maybe a zip code. You can do either one, and then you can put in a, a medical specialty, say orthopedics, or you could put in instead of just orthopedics, you might be looking at a physician who does hip replacements. So you might put in hip replacements, so or you might put in shoulder repair. So you can focus it fairly, fairly precisely, and you can focus it just on your immediate area, or you can focus it on the country. Because some people have a, a problem that's perhaps so challenging and difficult that they're willing to travel anywhere in the country to find yeah. the right physician. So, so let's hopefully you're it's consumer-friendly. Yeah, you're di- John, you're diagnosed with cancer. You live in a small town in Montana, for instance, and you have a very serious cancer diagnosis. So you maybe want to go to a top medical facility closest to you, but a top facility that's, that's near you, and so you can look those up and then choose a physician. Well, you, you can, I have a question, though. In finding a doctor, what's the most important factor in finding a doctor? I mean, um, how do you, you know, what do you, well, how do you go, yeah. The, you know, after we receive all these nominations, we have a research team headed by a physician that screens the credentials of all the physicians, uh, both on the positive and negative side. So on, on the negative side, they check out their disciplinary history and their malpractice history where it's available. And on our website, we have links to the 49 states that have disciplinary history online. So it can be very simple to make sure your doctor hasn't had a disciplinary history. On the positive side, they look at their medical education, their residencies, their fellowships, hospital appointments, all of that. And the most important criteria, I believe, Catherine, is board certification. People don't realize it, but in any state in this country, whether it's uh, New York or Vermont or California, uh, a physician who is licensed in that state can call themselves any kind of specialist they want. They can call themselves a surgeon, a plastic surgeon, a gynecologist, a pediatrician. And the only way you know whether the physician has had appropriate training in that specialty is if they're board certified. And that means they've completed a residency of at least three years and passed an exam. And many physicians have much more training than that. But at least board certification is a minimal essential qualification in our opinion. So, John, board certified in that particular specialty. In other words, you didn't just go through four years, not just, but you didn't go through four years of medical school and, let's say, an internship, and then can you, and some doctors will call themselves a cardiologist or a dermatologist or whatever, but they're not board certified? Exactly, and, and that's a major issue. You really want to make sure that physician is, is trained properly in the specialty. Here's a scenario. Let's say you're going to your doctor and you're being treated for something, uh, let's say dermatology, and he's, he or she isn't quite sure what it is, and you want a second opinion. Or how do you do? You talk to your own primary care physician or your own specialist, your dermatologist, and then say you're going to go online and find another doctor. Um, in America's top doctors to get a second or third opinion, or how does that work? Uh, I think that's how, exactly how you should do it. Now, many people are concerned that their doctor will be offended if they do that, and the physician should not be offended, and, and they should be supportive of you getting a second opinion because very often, uh, you know, they change the original opinion. Forty percent of original diagnoses in this country are wrong. And, and particularly if you're going to do surgery or get a critical treatment, a second opinion is worth it. Challenge is that many health plans won't pay for second opinions today. On the other hand, some will. But even if you have to pay for it, it's worth getting it done. Uh, and as I said, particularly if you're going to have surgery or a critical treatment, and some people will get two or three opinions and see if they all coalesce around the same diagnosis and the same um, course of treatment. Uh, it's worth it, even if you have to pay for it. In these days, there are a lot of uh, 
companies who do second opinions over the internet and and they have software where you can send your your blood work, you can send your films, all your medical records, everything else, and a physician will give you an opinion over their their website. And for most of them it's only if you know, I don't know, five hundred to a thousand dollars and that's clearly worth it if you're facing some critical health question. Yeah, and you know, doctors do agree with you. I have a lot of doctors on these shows, on my show, and they, 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 most of them say exactly what you're saying. That if you're a doctor and you don't want your patient to have a second or third opinion, then perhaps the patient shouldn't be going to that doctor because that's not the, that a really fine physician will welcome a second or third opinion, which is kind of what I hear you saying. Yes, and that's, that's the professional way they should be responding to that issue. And you're right. I think if I went to a doctor and and he was upset about my getting a second opinion, I think I'd consider finding another doctor. Yeah, especially if this physician is going to, let's say you have breast cancer, I, you know, as a woman, there are just all kinds of choices, many, many choices in terms of how you treat the same kind of cancer. So it would seem to me anyone should at least get a second opinion and probably a third opinion. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. About- and, you know, an example that's universal for men and women is back surgery. There are so many different approaches to back problems, uh, I think there's an area where people absolutely should get second opinions. I know more people who have had surgery recommended and then up, ended up doing rehab and never ne- needing surgery. So a, a basic rule in medicine is always try the, the medical solution first before a surgical solution because surgery can't be reversed, but medical solutions can be changed as they go along. Yeah, and isn't the old saying, I mean, if you go to a surgeon, that was, that's what they do, so they tend to want to recommend surgery. <laughs> that's their area of expertise. You know, first go to the medical so, doctor. So true. He or she, yeah, see what he or she has to say. You're also, because, I mean, you're an expert in this, the whole medical field, uh, doing this research every year for over this period of time. What is a concierge medical service. What are concierge doctors? What do they do? How do you access them? Are they on your website? Uh, yes, there there many are, but that's a whole growing field that has come about because patients are upset with spending 11 minutes with a doctor, which is the average encounter time between a primary care physician and a patient. They're annoyed by having to wait three and four weeks for appointments. My wife just called her a primary care physician and was told the next appointment was three weeks away. People are tired of that. And and physicians are tired of rushing patients through and never having the time to really get to know them well, spend time with them, offer preventive advice and all of that. So conscious medicine is a model where physicians... Uh, primary care physicians reduce their patient panel from, say, 22 to 2,500 doctors down to five or 600 doc, uh, patients, excuse me, and those patients pay a fee, say, around $2,000 in many cases, to join the concierge practice. The so is that two, is that, the John, patient, I have to stop you. Is that $2,000 a year, and then you pay every year, like an annual fee, or what? Or just to join? Yes. Yes. And... Um, of course, that's an obstacle for many patients, but many conscientious doctors will continue patients on what they call scholarship, particularly if they've had a long relationship with them. They'll charge them a lower fee or won't charge them at all. But the result is the patient gets faster appointments either the next day or even the same day. They get a lot more time with their physician. They get health uh, prevention advice, they get telemedicine services, they get health coaching. So they get a lot of really good care, and the physician gets to know their patients better, um, gets to practice medicine in the way he or she thought they could. Because today, primary care physicians are pressured either economically because they have to see a lot of patients to earn a decent living, or they're pressured by hospitals that own their practices or by large medical groups to see more and more patients. And so 
I think physicians and patients today are tired of the treadmill of medicine that's out there, and concierge medicine offers an alternative to that. Yeah, I know when it first came out, it was, you know, very controversial, but as you say, I can see it's becoming more of a trend, maybe with the aging population, but, you know, you were talking about your wife having to wait so long for her primary care physician, like three weeks for a for an appointment. I was at a friend's house, and uh, uh, she had a conscientious concierge doctor and she had just had some kind of minor surgery and the phone rings and uh it's her doctor asking how she's feeling and you know was she okay you know i mean and it was it wasn't the nurse calling to check up or the you know assistant it was the doctor and that was part of the service um yeah so and that's the difference between primary care when you're out in that highly pressured environment and concierge medicine you get that kind of care and service now, is, but the prices are different, isn't it? Like, if you're in a big city, it may be more costly, and maybe it's not $2,000 a year. Is it less costly, let's say, in a small town? Maybe there aren't as many concierge doctors. I don't know. But does the cost vary across the country or in different states and different cities? It, it, it does, and not only that, it varies even within the same city. And, and there are concierge company, Castle Conley Private Health Partners. We have some physicians who charge $2,000 and some who charge $4,000. And a lot depends on exactly the kind of services the physician's going to offer, and also it depends on the demographics of the population and the expense of the environment. For example, you know, a, an Upper East Side practice on, on Fifth Avenue or Park Avenue in Manhattan can charge a lot more than a physician in a small town. So uh, typically they tend to adjust their prices to the demographics and the income strata of the area they practice. How do the other physicians feel about concierge doctors? I mean, are they threatened by them? Or is there any kind of a, you know, a tension between them? Or not at all, them? because, they, you know, they're, they're not competing very much because they're actually taking on fewer patients. I think in many cases, physicians are envious that they didn't make that choice or want to make that choice. Um, we haven't even done any marketing for Castle Conley Private Health Partners. We just have physicians who hear about it and call us and want to look at concierge medicine and see if it's right for them. So I don't think there's, there's any professional competition or jealousy between concierge physicians and others. Um, at all. It's, it's, I think, very compatible. And in fact, insurance companies, which initially were not wild about the idea, now uh, are beginning to embrace it because they realize that primary care doctors and concierge practice have a lot more time to deal with the issues of their patients, so they're not referring out to specialists as much. So overall, the costs are actually lower. So it's an added choice, and it sounds like a positive one. It also sounds like it's getting a lot of play in terms of it is going to be much more popular. I kind of want to now go on to kind of a different subject. I noticed I went to have a checkup, you know, a couple months ago, and my physician is in his 60s, and one of the things he said, he said, you know, I didn't necessarily want to have to retire, but because I'm in my 60s, I don't have access to or I don't know how to navigate or access computers in the way that, say, my fellow colleagues in their 30s and 40s do, and they really are kind of taking over the profession. And he said, I'm not the only one. And then a friend of mine who went to a very young doctor said, yes, completely different kind of care. He's sitting there with his computer. She said she's asking him questions. He's typing it out on the computer. He's getting answers. He's getting information. Very different. Can you... Talk about that a little bit because, I mean, you obviously have access to, you know, hundreds if not thousands of doctors across the country, but this kind of difference in age group and how they practice medicine. Well, I think what you're describing, Catherine, is very accurate. Uh, There are many older doctors, uh, and it's not just because of the introduction of technology into the practice of medicine, but it's the the pressures of insurance companies or if they've sold their practice to a hospital, they basically are going to retire. Uh, and many of them, unfortunately, retiring earlier, which, which only uh, intensifies the physician shortage that we face today. Another complaint we get, which is, is interesting, 
that you mention it. We get patients who call and complain that their doctor spent all of his or her time looking at the computer instead of looking at them because doctors are required now to use electronic health records and the systems of, uh, of billing and payment have become much more complicated. Um, there's a, a new system for coding for illnesses called ICD-10 that's been introduced, which takes the number of diagnoses a doctor can use from something like 700 to 7,000. And, and the doctor has to be doing all of this. And so it, it's a challenge for doctors who, who, a lot of them do not like it, as well as for patients. And, and they're annoyed their doctor's spending all the time on the computer. Yeah, so what's the balance? It seems to me there has to be, or could be, some kind of a balance. Uh, to me, if I... Well, see, if, I, the, yeah, if the doctor had the time, and if the doctor had the time and could take 10 minutes or 15 minutes between patients, they could get all their notes and then dictate them or type them in after they saw the patient. But they don't have the time because they have to see another patient right away. So... You know, they have to do it while the patient is there. And I, the solution, unfortunately, is, is beyond uh, my ability to, to cope with, and that is what you have to do is have primary care doctors especially earn more so they don't have to see as many patients, and they can take the time to deal with their patients without looking into the computer all the time, and they can spend their time with the patients. But... I, I'm, I don't see any chance of that happening in the near future. Yeah, no, it doesn't sound like it's, well, that's going to happen. Uh, you know, we're all used to being on computers and getting, you know, instant, have instant access to information. Uh, for me, I would like to be able to email my physician. Um, I think now Medicare allows you to email a nurse. 24-7 if you have a question, but for your private physician to be able to have access to, like, emailing them if you have a question and then getting an answer back, that kind of thing, I mean, that seems to me the wave of the future. I mean, as you're talking about doctors sitting there writing out their notes and then going back and kind of having to edit them and doing, kind of sounds a little bit antiquated. Well, that <laughs> emailing and not only emailing uh, is part of concierge medicine. And many concierge doctors are offering more. They're offering telemedicine. So you can call your doctor on, on a telemedicine platform and talk with them face-to-face. And that's uh, becoming a more common practice, particularly in concierge medicine and people like that. If what's held that back, even though the technology has been available for years, is the lack of reimbursement. So a doctor might spend 10 or 15 minutes talking with a patient through the Internet but can't get paid for it. And that's changing. Many payment systems are recognizing that and starting to pay doctors for it because they realize in the long run it saves money because the patients don't have to come trekking into the office. They can do it remotely from home. They can even get prescriptions. So now states are beginning to authorize payment for telemedicine as well as for emailing. So it seems like we're kind of, to me, as you're describing all of this, we're kind of on the cutting edge, aren't we? I mean, medicine is, the whole system is is in the process of changing. Um, you know, we're talking about... I've, I've been in yeah. healthcare for 30 years, Catherine. Yes. Um, and I have seen more change in the last five or six than in the 25 years before that. The big change 15 years ago or so was managed care, and that changed the culture of medicine dramatically. But in the last five years, the introduction of new payment models, of new technology, of efforts to create greater transparency and medical cost and medical care, um, all of that, I think, has dramatically changed medicine, and I think we're going to see continued change because there are constant changes taking place in the uh, Accountable Care Act. There are constantly new technologies uh, emerging. You know, people see what they're calling the unicorn companies as 
companies like Google and Facebook and everything else that turned out to be worth many billions of dollars. And people are looking for those unicorn investments in healthcare. So now you have people making appointments online, just like they do for restaurants. Uh, and, and you have it's just the electronic health record and telemedicine. And all of this is taking place. And so the changes are just, I'd say, almost in the middle. And I think we've got another five years before all the things we've started in the last decade pan out. Well, I think it's an exciting time, and of course, and you are in the midst of it, so uh, we got about a minute left, so uh, castleconley.com is where we can go. That's the website. Uh, is, is it uh, C-O-N-N-O-L-L-Y. Um, any other websites Correct. you know about that's related to what you're doing? Is America's Top Doctors. They basically lead to the same website, Okay. and there's a load of information on there to help people make good health care choices. Great. Great having you on the show today, and you've given us a lot of information. Uh, John Conley, um, and go to his website, America's Top Doctors, that website, and those listings. Thanks so much. Um, we're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We will be back in a minute. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. The schizophrenia community faces tough challenges every day. The community includes individuals living with schizophrenia, their partners, parents, children, siblings, friends, neighbors, co-workers, and also their providers of health care and social services. To hear Dr. Gordon Atherley introduce members of the schizophrenia community who are sharing their experiences... Tune in to Schizophrenia Community Radio every week, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. And 
You're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Bruce Feiler. He's author of The Secrets of Happy Families, Improve Your Mornings, Rethink Family Dinner, Fight Smarter, Go Out and Play, and much, much more. He's a New York Times best-selling author. He's uh, actually, as we were just speaking before the show, is working on an article as we speak. But, uh, so, but we have the opportunity to talk to him, The Secrets of Happy Families. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Bruce. Thank you, Catherine. It's great to be with you. Well, you know, I don't know anybody who doesn't want to be privy to what those secrets are, because uh, including myself, I just went mm-hmm. through a weekend of my middle son getting married, so we had all the family stuff going on, and I think at every, you know, whether it's a holiday or an event or, or even just, you know, your activities of daily living, we're all kind of struggling to improve our family dynamics. So you've got the book, How Do We Do It? I, you know, we've got sort of the step-by-step of how to do it. Um, so let's start with that. And it's also, a, as your book is described, as being very funny and, and as well as thought-provoking. So, um, Well, I, I sort of got into this, you know, um, uh, my wife, before I joined you in the conversation this morning, said, be sure you tell them that you didn't write about happy families because you had one, but because yeah. <laughs> you wanted one. Exactly. So, you know, we were... We were sort of making every mistake in the book. We have um, our, our children sound like they're a little bit younger than yours. Um, yeah. uh, we have uh, identical twin daughters, and and this whole project of mine, both both writing my New York Times column and working on the secrets of happy families, began about five six years ago when our daughters sort of left that phase which I like to say is when you play defense, right? In the early years, yeah. it's all about, you know, diaper caddies and sippy cups and napping and snacking and yeah. discipline. And, and you, just, you just have to deal with what comes at you. Uh, uh, a friend of mine recently said that no one should get divorced until their uh, younger, youngest child turns five, right? Because it's just <laughs> going to be difficult. Yeah, good but, advice. But then what happens is then you enter this period where, okay, well, you want to build a family culture. You want to make a family that works. But the truth is there's actually not a lot of uh, ideas out there about this, right? There's a lot of books about sort of what to do with young kids. There's a lot of books about teenagers and sort of the, 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 the Wayfair years when everything starts to go, um, you know, they become independent and, and they begin to pull away from you. But humans actually have something that most other species of animals don't have, which is this period, about 10 years, between what I call the, the first step and the first kiss, right? You know, the... Um, uh, the potty training and the prom, where you can really develop a culture, and that's really what I wanted to focus on, and and that's what I set out to do. But when I set out, you know, you mentioned step by step. I I for one don't like those lists of the five or six or seven things that you must do to have a happy family because I usually forget number three, and I disagree with number five, and I think you know my kids will never get into college. Um, but. What happened was, as I started talking to families and, 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 and people who were doing really cutting-edge research and sort of experts in business and, and sports and, and sort of what are they doing with their families, what happened was certain ideas kept popping up over and over again. So I sort of have, I kind of have egg on my face, but I ended up with what I call my non-list list of things that, that all high-functioning families have, and I think it does apply to people with young kids, teenagers, or in your case, older kids, and maybe, God willing, for you soon, grandkids. Yeah, well, I think what you said, build a family culture, and that's really critical, and that's not easy to do because, like you said, first five years, for instance, I mean, there aren't a lot of choices. You have to you have to change the diaper. It's not like you have ten different ways of changing the diaper. Right. Well, they're about to hurt themselves. You have to prevent them from doing that. But then it gets more complex and more complicated, which is what those are the issues you're dealing with. I think another thing, Bruce, people won't admit that their family isn't happy either. You know, everybody kind of goes, well, I, I think that this facade, oh, we're happy, and everybody tries to want to sort of hold on, a lot of people, or a lot of families, hold on to that and hold on to behavior that isn't really working for them. Um, so well, that's I think that's exactly issue. right. I think you, you make a really good point. And, and, but here's how I have come to see this, right? You know, we all know we've got to work on our bodies, right? We all know we have to work. What, if, you, if you want to run a marathon or bake a cake, you know you've got to practice. You know you've got to spend time. If you're not going to get it right the first time. We even have all internalized that we have to work on our relationships. But our families, we sort of put at the end of the list, you know, it'll happen, whatever, I'm too exhausted. You know, my day at work was difficult. I've got to get grandma ready for the eye doctor or whatever it might be, which is why the first 
thing that I realized and identified that all high-functioning families have in common is that they adapt all the time, is that they... You, there's this line of the Internet which I think really applies to the families. And that is well, what they say in the Internet space is if you're doing the same thing today that you were doing six months ago, you're doing the wrong thing, right? So, you know, today, you know, my kids, for example, right now have a big project at school. Well, and guess what? In six months, they may be, they're going to be moving to a new home. And six months after that, grandma may be coming to stay for a few months. So the point is you need to change. And, and one of the things that that I have learned that high-functioning families do, that we have now done. We do it for five years in my families. We have a family meeting. Uh, we do it every Sunday night. We do it for 20 minutes. And we sit down and we say, what, we ask three questions. What worked well in our family last week? What didn't work well in our family last week? And what can we all agree to work on in the week ahead? And we pick two things that we're going to work on. We don't pick nine. We pick two things. Um, for example, this week it was uh, fighting over screen time. My kids want more screen time. We want to have less screen time, and we need a new system. So we're working, we're working on that. And guess what? Mom has a business trip this week. And so we talked about how the kids can do extra in the morning to help Dad because he has to both make breakfast and get them out the door. And so what we're doing is we're saying that our family is valuable and meaningful enough to us that for 20 minutes a week we're going to sit down and talk about um, how we can do it better. That okay. we, All right, Liv, can we stop there? Because you said you sit down. I think that's a great idea. And But you're sitting down with your what the girls, identical twins? Identical twins. They're now ten and a half, yes. Ten and a half. And, you can, and we started when they were like, five. Okay, so but you identify the problem. It sounds like that's not an issue. You know, you know, mom's going away on a business trip. Uh, we want you know more screen time, less screen time. Okay, tell us exactly what the process is, though. You know, families sometimes will identify the problem, even if they're screaming each other, but they can't seem to figure out okay how to how to solve or resolve it. That's right. the issue. Yeah. So, okay, so look, there have been a couple of big changes, three big changes in the families in the last generation, right? One is that the definition of the family has changed. So it's not just a nuclear family. We've got divorced families living in the same house. We've got married families living in separate houses. We've got gay families, adoptive families, different kinds of families. We also, that's the first change. The, first change. the second change is that moms are working now. Three-quarters of moms are working outside the home. The third big change is that dads are much more involved in parenting than they used to be, Right. So, and the reason that matters is I think that parents, particularly dads have this problem especially, is there's this idea that you've got to have all the answers. You're supposed to know everything. You're supposed to be Mr. Fix-It. And one of the things that this system of sort of a family meeting allows is that you don't have to have all the answers, right? When I became a dad, I thought, I'm going to set three rules and we're going to follow them and it's all going to work. Well, guess what? I'm wrong a lot. So the first idea of the family meeting system is you're going to try a solution, and if it doesn't work this week, you're going to gather next week and you're going to try it again. So you have a process of including everybody, and when the default at every moment for us is we try to get our kids involved in the conversation. If you've never done it, you think it's sort of the, the, you know, the, the uh, inmates are running the asylum, but anyone who does it realizes that you're teaching your kids to take more responsibility for the old, old family. Whenever we have problems, whenever most families have problems, um, what I have found in you know, six, seven years of looking at this is that the parents try to hold too much power themselves and force it on the children. I can get my kids to do what I want, maybe once or twice, but ultimately it's not going to work. Nothing is top-down anymore, right? Not business, not government, not even religion, uh, not sports. You have to get everybody involved. And I think that what this meeting is doing is saying, okay, we got a screen time problem. You know, child, what's your solution? Child two, what's your solution? Mom, what's your solution? Dad, what's your solution? And then we pick a solution and we'll say, we'll try it for two weeks and then we'll discuss it again. The, the answer is actually not the solution. Um, it's the process of how you achieve the solution and getting everybody involved in saying, we're all living together and we've got we to gotta work together to make sure we're going to do it the best we can. Okay, so we're talking about negotiation, aren't we? I mean, the process of negotiation amongst everybody in the family, and we have to do it. What about, Bruce, when everybody says, or many uh, many family members may say, you know, uh -huh. I really don't have time for it this week. I really can't do it. Can we just kind of cut it out this week yeah. and not do it? Yeah. Uh, it happens a lot, and but here's what happens, okay? You know, your kids are going to get, there's going to be a point where your kids are a certain age and maybe even they're adult kids, and there's something that a, a, a child wants. And the child, let's just say the child will come in to mom or dad 
usually at, say, 10 o'clock on a Thursday night, right? So you're flossing your teeth, right? And, the, you know, the yeah. food's going up into the mirror. Yeah. And you got to call, you know, grandma, as I said, to figure out who's taking her to the eye doctor. You're wondering who's buying the plane tickets to Thanksgiving. you got all this chaos. And in comes your smiling, darling child and says... Um, you know, I need to go to Susie's on Saturday night, and i got to stay out past my bedtime. And by the way, uh, I need $20. Uh, Ellen Galinsky of the Families and Work Institute asked a 1,000 uh, uh, children if they could improve one thing about their families, what would it be? And then they asked, before she asked the kids, she asked the parents, what do you think your kids are going to say? And the moms and dads all said, oh, my kids are going to say they want to spend more time with me. That's what they want to change. Well, they were wrong. Guess what the kids said? The kids all said, we want our parents to be less tired and less stressed. So our kids know that we're out of control. We know we're chaotic. And they come to us at the most vulnerable time because they know, what are you going to do at that moment? You're going to, here's your $20, don't bother me. You're going to do what you don't want to do because you're too stressed. If instead at that moment you say, by the way, we didn't discuss this at the family meeting. You didn't tell me you needed to stay out uh, past your, your, um, your curfew. Why don't you come to the family meeting on Saturday morning? I guarantee you the kids will be the first one there. Because if you don't do it, they're gonna, you're going to do things that you don't want because when you're tired and exhausted, you, you just it's like why you eat a pint of ice cream when you're tired and exhausted because yeah. your defenses break down. Absolutely, and they know exactly when to do it, either when you're brushing your teeth, as you say, uh-huh. or you're cooking in the kitchen and the phone's ringing and you have to get to a meeting and they ask you the question, yeah. you just want to get, yeah, okay, do it, and then the next time I won't let you do it, but this time we just, I can't deal with it. And they well, that know how gets to, do to the, that, look, that gets to, Catherine, that gets to the second thing on my list. So the first thing I think is adapt all the time. You need to adapt all the time. You need to change because circumstances change. But if you changed every week, you would go crazy. And therefore, the second thing on my list that high-functioning families have in common is that they talk a lot. And they don't just have difficult conversation. As you know, there's several chapters in The Secrets of Happy Families about how to have difficult conversations. What you're talking about is what it means to be part of your family. Of all the ideas in The Secrets of Happy Families, you know, probably the, the, the family meeting is, is one of the top three. The second one, one of the ones my wife says is one of the best things we did, is we sat down and we made a family mission statement. Okay, now, this is something that we all know from our businesses or our organizations or our teams or whatever groups we're involved in. You make a mission statement. This is what we're about. To sit and do that as a family is a really powerful, transformative experience where you say, what is really important to us? Um, and you identify your, not 30 values, because, you know, who, 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 can, who can keep up with 30 values? But you say, these are the four or five things that we do that are most important to us. And in our case, we did it. There's a whole thing in my book, as you know, about how to write one for your family. People put them all over the Internet. Uh, um, but what we're talking about here is people sitting and saying, this is who we want to be. You're going to fail. We, ours is printed up in our dining room. You know, one of them is I don't like solutions. I like, I don't like dilemmas. I like solutions. That's one of my wife's saying, you know, we, we help other people to fly. We, we got a call from a school um, when one of my kids got into a fight with another kid. So we had to go in. We're like, oh my gosh, we got mean girls. What are we going to do? Right. And so my wife, who's a bunch of organization that helps entrepreneurs, she's a very powerful woman. She had no idea. She wasn't used to getting called to the principal's office when she was a kid. And here we got called to the principal's office. So she's like, I've got to do something. So she called our kids in, and we had this conversation. And she was, my wife was stammering, like, ah, that, that, didn't know how to have this conversation. And then she said to my kid, uh, who was the one in trouble, like, you know, anything on our mission statement apply? And she looked up at the list, and she said, oh, we bring people together. And uh, boom, we had a way into the conversation. Again, it's helpful to have to talk about what your family is about so that when you are chaotic and the phone's ringing and you got a presentation the next day at work you got to prepare for, you, know, you, have this, you have this ideal that you know, the psychologists call it your best possible self. This is your best possible ideal as a family so that you're reminded that it's there so that when you, you stray, you can talk about getting back to it. Yeah, and I think, Bruce, one of you, and I guess this, you're saying the same thing, but you don't wait till the crisis occurs or wait to have this very special conversation. You should be having it all the time. You should understand what the mission is. You should be talking about all of these things 
all the time so that it doesn't become something that is just, you know, you're put in a position where you you don't know how your family reacts to certain crises or certain situations if you've been always talking about it. I think, you know, and I think that's really, I think resiliency is, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking families need to be resilient. And when you sort of present them, as you do in your book, with how to be resilient in a way, I mean, that's what it feels like to me. Well, we have so much research, and anybody listening to this conversation has practical personal experience. All families have conflict. Conflict is part of what it means to have a people sometimes you know, living closely together. What the research clearly shows is you want to spend time. Uh, if you can reduce and minimize the conflict, back to what it means to be part of your family, you're going to do well. And I, I mentioned that there were, say, three ideas from my book that have emerged as the most influential, and the book was on the bestseller list for a long time, and I do a lot of speaking about it. Well, the first, as I said, is the family meeting. The second is this family mission statement. The third, it gets to this idea of resilience that you just brought up. And it's a kind of a shocking idea, but it's incredibly simple and incredibly powerful. And that is tell your family history. We know that the that, that children who know more about their family history, there was a sort of a 20-question a quiz that some researchers at Emory gave to students. Where were your grandparents born? Uh, do you have an aunt or an uncle who had a, you know, an illness that they overcame? Where did your parents go to high school? The more children knew about their own family background, the, uh, the greater sense of uh, self-esteem that they had, and more importantly, the greater ability that they believed that they could overcome challenges. Okay? We know that your children are going to hit bumps in the road. Right? That's going to happen. And you want to give them the belief and the understanding that people that they know and they're related to, and by the way, it works for adoptive children, it works for blood children, but people who know people who overcame difficulty. Your grandfather worked hard, and he became the vice president of the bank, but then he had a house that burned down. Okay? Your aunt um, had three beautiful children um, and a wonderful job, but she got breast cancer. If they have in their knowledge your children a practical, intimate connection with people who faced difficulties and overcame them, it gives them an incredible leg up as they work their way through the world because it teaches them not the abstract of, oh, be resilient, but, oh, look, Aunt Judy was resilient. Oh, remember what Grandpa uh, faced. And I have to say, for me personally, this has been very challenging to internalize because my instincts, so many of our instincts as uh, parents, is to protect our children, to not let them know that things go wrong, right? Because we want them to have a rosy view of the world. We don't want to burden them with their own stress. But if you can, in an age-appropriate way, kind of open up the closets and bring out the, bring out the skeletons and tell them about the challenges, you actually are doing your children more, uh, more good uh, than you might expect. So tell I, them I think that's absolutely, uh, that is key. I think that point is really, you know, and, and like you said, I mean, my kids are quite a bit older than yours, but I think, so I've had the, sort of the opportunity to see how that plays out. But I think, you know, uh, in, in reading your book, that's exactly what, being the perfect parent, of course, I think that's what I did. But, I mean, that was always the goal. Tell, it's kind of based on tell the truth. I mean, if you paint this rosy picture for kids, then yes. their expectation is the world is going to be rosy, and it's not, and you really haven't prepared them well. I mean, you've really done them a disservice. So um, I, I think that point is really well taken. And um, I'll, I'll, I, I'll go one step further, um, just you know, listening to you talk. As your kids get older, and, and you know, it, it has to do with talking about sexuality. It has to do with talking about money. Um, you know, the, the idea of teaching your children, to, uh, 80% of children get to college never having spoken to their parent, to their children about money or debt or, or, or where money comes from or how it's spent. And, you know, parenting is odd in, in the sense that you, you, your children begin entirely dependent on you, but your goal is to send them out in the world dependent from you. 
And therefore, you want to teach them to make mistakes, to actually have the problems, as you alluded to. And that's especially true with making their own financial decisions, making their own decisions about sexuality and their own bodies, making decisions about do you get in the car with that uh, uh, friend who's had a little too much to drink. If you are making, this goes back to the family meeting we're saying, if you're making all the decisions for your children, it may be easier for you because you're usually going to make the right decision. Um, and they're often going to make the wrong decision, but actually you want them to make mistakes when they're young and the mistakes are low, um, as opposed to when they're 22 and rack up a lot of debt and they have to call you and say, uh, well, I need $10,000 to pay off my credit card bill. You want them to be doing that with a $6 allowance when they're, si- when they're eight, uh, rather than a $60,000 salary you know, when they're 30. Yeah. And I think another piece of that is, is if what appropriate and doing it in an appropriate way is giving examples of the mistakes, and, which ties into your whole thing about family history, the mistakes that you made, not moralizing, but that, you know, this is, and it wasn't a good decision that I made or it wasn't a good choice. So I'm talking to you from experience. I'm not talking to you from moralizing or trying to necessarily project all my uh, worries onto you, but Real stuff, stuff that happened to me, and I think that's helpful, too. And here's a, here's a simple way you can do it this very evening, okay? We play a game in our family a couple days a week um, called Bad and Good, where everybody has to go around the dinner table and say something that happened bad to them, and everyone goes around and says something that happened good to them. And when we started this, my wife, who has a very kind of upbeat personality, her thing was, oh, I don't want to talk about bad things in front of my kids. And I was like, no, no, it's the opposite, actually. You want to show them in kind of real time that you had a challenge. I wanted to go to your soccer game, but I had a presentation um, at work. Um, oh, um, I had somebody say something uh, critical of me uh, uh, on the bus today as, as, I was, as I was going to work, you know, or I, I overheard somebody saying something, or I saw... You want to show a kind of a real-time Petri dish of how you handled conflict, because guess what? Almost whatever you're dealing with, chances are they're dealing with something at school that it's a similar kind of social dynamic. It's especially true with girls who are very sensitive to social dynamics. Um, it, it, you know, you want to show them that you faced a problem and you got over it. It could be a tiny thing, like, oh, I walked out and I left my presentation at home. It's the equivalent of, you know, I, didn't, I forgot to bring my homework to school. So exactly. uh, you, you can do that on a daily basis. Exactly. And, you, uh, you know, I could, we, have, we have 30 seconds left, literally. So I just want, I want people to go out and get your book, The Secrets of Happy Families, New York Times bestselling author, Bruce Feiler, Blueprint for Modern Families, great book. Uh, you can buy it online, Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. Thanks, Bruce, for sharing all of that with, uh, with us today. Um, My pleasure. And keep, keep, keep happy families and keep working on those problems. We will. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.